Years ago, I saw an episode of The Simpsons. Yes, Homer. And as I say that, I realize that may be sort of an outdated cultural reference by this point. But an episode of The Simpsons in which uh, Homer somehow, I don't remember exactly the story, but Homer got religion. And he decided to go to church on one Sunday with his family. And so they went to church. And the preacher on that particular Sunday very predictably showed himself to be boring and insensitive and totally, completely irrelevant by reading Scripture. It wasn't so much reading Scripture. It was what Scripture he read. He read a genealogy. And I have to confess to you that today I'm that preacher. But it is high school graduation season after all. And so some of you are accustomed at this point in the year to sitting through long lists of names. And, you know, some, somebody was telling me, I think Rob Temple was telling me out there uh, this morning that, uh, that some of the high school classes he sees are five or 600 students. And so, you know, you sit through these long lists of names. This one is not that long. And I hope that as you hear this, instead of boredom, you'll find curiosity and Instead of insensitivity, you'll actually find this to be revealing of very engaging truths. And instead of irrelevance, irrelevance, you'll find that this is one of the most significant things that you can have as you see what Luke has for you in his gospel account in Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but even this word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand 
and help us to see. We pray that you would give us your spirit because otherwise this is just a boring and irrelevant list of names that means nothing to us. We don't even know who these people are. But God, we know that you're at work in your word. We know that your spirit moves among your people. And so we pray that you would do that and that you would open our eyes, open our minds, make our hearts available to receive your good news in Jesus and to believe. And we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. On the day that one of our children was born, the nurses had no sooner bathed the child and handed the child to me when I noticed an important detail, important to me. I said, this one has my thumbs. It was clear. The hands were my hands, only much smaller. This one has my thumbs. The family resemblance was very obvious. Some years later, with other kids in the house, my mother handed to me an old grainy photograph from the 1970s, and she said, look at this picture and see who you think that is sitting on the porch of your grandmother's house. That was me, but we both knew what she was talking about. That child sitting on the porch of my grandmother's house in the early 1970s was not just me. It was one of my own kids. looked just like me in the photo because the family resemblance was obvious. Some years later, Watching another one of our kids playing basketball on the basketball court with the team, I began to recognize the, the way that this one moved on the court and, and interacted with the other players on the court. And I thought, that looks familiar. And then I saw an old grainy VHS video of, of one of my old basketball games, and I recognized myself, and I saw my own child running up and down the court in the late 1980s. Because the the family resemblance was obvious. Sometimes the family resemblance can be unmistakable. Always, always the paternal or maternal love and pleasure that that family resemblance generates is undeniable. Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus, remember? He's writing to this Greek nobleman who is possibly somewhat skeptical of the gospel, but certainly curious about it and open to listening and to reading about it. And so Luke is writing his account to this man, Theophilus. And Luke is intent to prove that this man, Jesus, the the miracle worker of that day, that this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, along with all of the implications that would follow from that for Luke, And for Theophilus, as well as for you and for me, Luke was intent to show that because if the family resemblance passed down from God the Father to Jesus the Son is true, then because of the gospel, whatever God the Father thinks of Jesus the Son, he also thinks of you who believe his gospel. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Luke includes the baptism of Jesus only briefly here, doesn't he? Just a couple of verses he gives us in his gospel account. He tucks it in between that striking work of John the baptizer, who we saw a couple of weeks ago, and this genealogy. He just kind of wedges it in between these two things. And Luke has his 
reasons for doing that, but seeing it there so, so briefly attended to begs a question. Why did Jesus get baptized by John at all? You know, John himself was kind of confused by that when Jesus came to him for baptism. John had been proclaiming a baptism with water of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But if Jesus was and is the Son of God, then he had no sins for which to be forgiven. And so why baptism for him? That's a good question. And in Matthew's account of this same thing, John asks and Jesus answers. He says it's to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he says it's the right thing for me to do at this moment in time John had insisted that baptism meant repentance, that it meant turning away from one thing and turning to another, turning away from temptation to idolatry and turning to the only God who is there to be worshipped. And Jesus was committed to doing those things, to turn from temptation and turn to obedience to God the Father. But even more, Jesus was committed to being those things. To being those things for you and for me. To standing in on behalf of his people so that what God the Father thinks of God the Son, he might also think of you and of me. Today is on the the liturgical church calendar what's called Pentecost. That means that it's the the day 50 days after Easter when in the book of Acts chapter 2, Luke accounts for us that The Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples there 50 days after the resurrection. And today is the the day of Pentecost. And here in this passage, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, marking him for a ministry of reconciliation to accomplish for you and for me that we might be both loved by God and pleasing to God. The Old Testament, before I get into those couple of points that you see there, The Old Testament has a number of genealogies in it, and I think that's where Homer Simpson was hearing his genealogy. It was all the the, the begats, Abraham begat Isaac and so forth. And that word was, you know, Homer's delight. But the Old Testament has all these genealogies. The New Testament only has two of them, Matthew and Luke. Both give a genealogy of Jesus. They both trace back the family line of Jesus, but they do it in different ways and for different reasons, I think. Luke gives, as I read there, 77 generations from Jesus back to the beginning. And Matthew gives only 42 generations in his genealogy, but Matthew doesn't go back as far as Luke does. But there are conflicts for skeptics in the midst of these genealogies. If you look at the two genealogies together, it's one of those places where if you're skeptical of Scripture... You could easily look at them and and say, well, there it is. The the Bible is inconsistent and unreliable because those things are not the same things. Matthew doesn't go as far back, but even in the parallel generations they cover from Abraham to Jesus, Matthew gives 42 generations and Luke gives 56 generations. That's quite a discrepancy between the two of them. But the reason is because Jewish lineage, lineage lists were not intended to include every member in the line. They were simply intended to establish the line from beginning to end, even skipping over generations as they went. In fact, as you read the, the, the genealogy here, you see the word son again and again and again as we read. 
But that word is actually not even there. It's not there. The, the really the, the accurate and literal reading would be Joseph of Healy, of Methot, of Levi, of Melchi, and so on. They were simply descended from one to another, leaving generations in between. It could be grandfather, great-grandfather, or more from one name to the next. There are names missing in between. Even in Matthew's genealogy, the word father is not there. It's the same thing. And so it's easily explained why the genealogies are different between the two of them. And that could also explain why many of the names are different. But the most important difference between the two is this. Matthew goes forward from Abraham to Jesus because his readers were Jewish. And they cared that Jesus was descended from Abraham. That's what they wanted to know. But Luke doesn't do that. He goes backward from Jesus all the way past Abraham to Adam to the first man, because his readers were Gentile readers, and Theophilus in particular, a Gentile nobleman, and his readers needed to know something different. I would suggest that there are two reasons for for Luke going all the way back to Adam. One of those reasons is biological. Luke wants to show that the bloodline of Jesus' family goes all the way back to the first man, Adam, to show that the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everyone. Everyone, because everyone bears the image of God. And so you are loved by God. In Genesis 2, you see the, the creation account there where, where God created the, all, all that we know of in those days of creation. Whatever you think of those days of creation... He created the light and the darkness. He created the water and the sky and then the land and the vegetation and the celestial bodies in the heavens and the creatures in the water and in the sky and on the land. And then finally on the sixth day, he created the crown of his creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his own image, he created them. Completely unique to the rest of his creation, in his own image he made these image bearers to be. And he even gave them responsibilities. He loved his image bearers as he loved himself because they were of him. Luke is writing to this Greek nobleman and to to the Gentiles who might have some regard for and respect for Abraham, but they were not Jewish people. They wanted to know, what does this miracle worker Jesus have to do with us? What does he have for us? They wanted to know, and Luke has an answer. Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God, just as the very first man from whom we have all descended was intended to be. So as we read the genealogy here, did did you get a little bit bored? I mean, it wasn't quite as bad as a high school graduation, right? I hope. And I tried to speed it along a little bit. Did you notice that? Give me some credit for that, right? I mean, I tried to read a little bit quickly. And I think I got most of the names right. But did you get a little bit bored? I mean, did it seem kind of repetitive to you? It, it, it should. You know, maybe you had thought, maybe he'll shorten it because it's obviously repetitive. Maybe he'll just kind of cut it short and skip about 70 names in the middle and spare us the repetition. Maybe, maybe you hoped for that. But even though that would be much more efficient, you would miss something. 
Do you know what you would miss? You would miss the complete ordinariness of Jesus. I mean, look at the names. Look at all those names. How many of those names do you actually recognize? A few of them are somewhat recognizable. If, a, if you're a, a pretty diligent Bible reader, you might recognize Zerubbabel or Shealtiel. They, they show up in the Old Testament as the, the Jews return from their exile back to Israel. And you probably would recognize David, the most famous in the line here, the king of Israel, or Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Methuselah, the oldest man ever to live. There are some recognizable names here. But there are 77 names in the list, and almost all of them are nobodies. Almost all of them don't show up in the annals of history anywhere else. Only their mama loved them. And nobody else knew about them because they were, they were nobodies. It's a, a boring list. I mean, it's kind of like a high school graduation. Mary has mentioned it a number of times from her own high school graduation in North Carolina. When, when, before we were married, her last name was Elster with an E. And so she showed up early on in the graduation ceremony, but her extended family came to see her graduate. And after the E's, they got up and left because they weren't going to hang around for the rest of the alphabet to unfold because, you know, it's just kind of a boring genealogy. It's a list of names. Biologically speaking, Jesus is a descendant of a line of the ordinary, unknown, flawed people who did not move the world just like you and me. And that makes it seem that these people are unimportant, but they're not. They're not unimportant. Why? Because they are image bearers of God. Every one of them bears the image of their creator. Adam, you notice, is not the end of the line. Luke wants to go all the way back to the first man, but he doesn't stop there, does he? Adam also was a son of God, the bearer of the image of God. There's a family resemblance, like son, like daughter. They've got his thumbs, they've got his looks, they've got his moves, and they've got his affection because of it. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter, God would say. In fact, Jesus would summarize the the whole law in two simple statements, wouldn't he? He would, would say, the law is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and To love your neighbor, what? As you love yourself. Because you do love yourself. I mean, why why the second one? Why, Why love your neighbor as you love yourself? Why would you love yourself? Some of you struggle to do that. Some of you have a hard time loving yourself because you don't recognize the image of God in you readily. Others of you perhaps love yourself too much. And so, the second commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. God loves you as he loves himself because you are the very image of him. And so, you love your neighbor because there's a family resemblance. Because you love yourself, you see the image of God in you. If the bloodline of Jesus the Son does not trace back to Adam the image of God, then your reasons for loving your neighbor can only be arbitrary. Do you know that? 
I mean, most of our world won't acknowledge that we as human beings are created in the image of God. And yet, most of the world recognizes intrinsic value in loving your neighbor. No one in the history of the world has objected to this statement of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even the most hardened critic would would see that and say, that's a good idea. But apart from Jesus tracing back in bloodline to Adam, there are only arbitrary reasons for doing it. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker is a professor of history at Western Sydney University in Australia. And she grew up in Australia in what she calls a loving secular home. And by the time she graduated from high school, she was a self-proclaimed critic of religion, especially of Christianity. And she went on to graduate with highest honors from her university in Australia. And from there, she went on to England to study at Cambridge University, where she earned a PhD in history. And while she was there as a PhD student, she attended some lectures by a professor named Peter Singer. Dr. Singer is a a moral philosopher and an atheist. And in his lectures about morality and the philosophy of it, Dr. Singer acknowledged that in the natural world, as we live in it, there is no universal standard for measuring human worth. In other words, as you go from one culture to another, from one country to another, from one, one time in history to another, there's no universal standard for acknowledging that human beings have any value to be concerned about. And that stirred Dr. Stonebreaker. That caused her to recognize that for her to care for people because they have intrinsic value, which was deeply rooted in her heart, was completely inconsistent with the atheism to which she held. She realized that her atheism gave her no reason to to care at all about the poor, about the needy, about her neighbor of any kind, because there was simply no grounds for it at all. And so she reluctantly began to wrestle with the Bible and, and to wrestle with theology as she would pick up a book and read about it. And then she moved to Florida and became a professor there at Florida State University. And there in that context, she began to see Christians feeding the homeless, advocating for immigrants, and caring for their neighbors in ways that she loved and respected. And she began to realize that she was becoming a Christian herself. Because she saw that God wants broken people, not self-righteous ones. That even in the brokenness, you reflect God's image and therefore you have value to be loved by God. And she saw that when Jesus in the synagogue declared that the kingdom of God will bring good news to the poor, release captives and give sight to the blind and free the oppressed, as you heard read moments ago from Isaiah, that gospel had reason for saying that and her atheism did not. God loves his image bearers because there's a family resemblance. Many of you know Bill and Akami Ray, who used to be members of our church years ago and now live in Colorado. Their son, Adrian, you all, many will know, was killed, murdered some 
nine years ago now here in Dallas by a man that he had taken in to help to care for. And then that man fled and was gone for years on the run from the law. Finally, the man was captured and brought to justice, and the trial of this man and his crime was just held, I think, this past week here near Dallas. And the Rays, of course, attended to see justice done for their son's killer. He was sent to prison for life. But there at the trial, Bill and Akami met their son's killer's parents. And there they they posted on Facebook, the four of them together, our son's killer's parents, now our friends and brother and sister in Christ. There is nothing on the face of this earth that could create that circumstance apart from the image of God in a man because we are more alike than we are different. God has placed his love on his people because he's placed his image in his people. But that's only part of the gospel, you know? Redemption is required. There's more required here. Because if the first reason that this genealogy traces all the way back to Adam is a biological one, the second reason is a theological one. God takes pleasure in those who believe his gospel promise. You are pleasing to God. Now, some of the generations in this list that we read here would have lived during the exile of the Israelites to Babylon. And they would have recognized that their people were living out the consequences of having rejected God for generations, and now they were living in exile. And for them, the idea of actually being pleasing to God would have seemed so far-fetched, even though it had been promised ages before, by Isaiah the prophet himself, who said, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see her righteousness and all kings her glory. She will be called by a new name that the Lord will bestow. She will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of her God, No longer will they call her deserted or desolate, but she will be called my delight. The Lord would delight in his people. He would delight in his sons. He would delight in his daughters. But how? When we lived in Georgia, in Macon, Georgia, there was a children's home there in the town, not far from where we lived. And the name of the children's home captured my attention early on. The name was Hepzibah. Hepzibah Children's Home there in Macon, Georgia. What does that word mean? That's the word that Isaiah used here. You will be called my delight. The word is Hepzibah. You will be called Hepzibah. My delight. It's the perfect name for a children's home. For children who have no parents, who are left there as orphans, and yet they're reminded by their caretakers, you are a delight to God who made you. Luke is the travel companion of Paul. You might remember that that Paul refers to Luke in the, the letter to the Colossians, and Luke refers to traveling with Paul in the book of Acts. Luke traveled with Paul for at least his second and third missionary journeys, as well as his imprisonment in Rome. And you can imagine the the kind of campfire conversations that they, along with their other traveling companions, might have had. 
as they traveled along, talking about and working through the theology of the gospel, you can just imagine how often and regularly they would have talked through these things, even as Paul wrote letters to the churches as they traveled. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said to them, The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man, Jesus, from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness, that is the family resemblance of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness, the family resemblance of the man from heaven. Paul's trying to work through the theology and explain to his friends in Corinth that the man Adam is where you came from and the man Jesus is now where you are and you bear family resemblance from both. We have God's image, but we need God's redemption in Jesus. How is that to come? And so Paul continued working it out. And in the letter to the Romans, he he explained further. He said, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. You can see the genealogy here. All of these people listed from Joseph back to Adam. And this is who Paul is writing about. that, That death came to all of them. And death may have reigned from the time of Adam, Paul says. But he was a pattern of the one to come, which was Jesus. It's these two bookends that matter to you. And so Paul along with Luke, writes, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. And therefore, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that God has given to you, that yes, you came from Adam, and yet you are by faith in Jesus. Now, I I can't imagine that Theophilus, who received this gospel letter, would have made these connections as he read this boring genealogy. I, I don't imagine Theophilus would have had the theology in place to make those connections yet. Eventually, perhaps he did. But Theophilus simply needed to know that the miracle worker, Jesus, was connected to him as well. That he was descended with all men from the first man, Adam. And therefore, this gospel was for him too. And if it's for Theophilus, then it's for you. And it's for me to be pleasing to God. To be a delight to God. Now, some of us would, would take all that, the theology of that, and say, well, justification by faith before God because of Jesus that's all that I need. And, and there's great truth to that. And some of us would take that and say, because that's all that I need, I don't need to do anything else. Well, not so fast. Be careful with that one, because the gospel calls you to action. I mean, throughout Paul's letters and the letters of others, we see this. In Colossians, Paul prays for his friends that they may be pleasing to the Lord in every way. That is, both in their good works and in their, their growing knowledge of God. Paul is saying to them, the Lord will be pleased with you as he sees your good works and your knowledge of him. And to the Romans, Paul wrote that being sensitive to the conscience of a Christian brother and sister 
is serving of Christ and pleasing to God. And to Timothy, Paul wrote, Pray for your civic authorities that your life might be peaceful and quiet because this pleases God, that you should pray for your civic authorities. And more than that, he wrote to Timothy, Care for your own family, including your parents and your grandparents. Why? Because this is pleasing to God. The writer of Hebrews said, Do good for and share with others because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And John, in his little letter, said, Obey God's commandments because it pleases Him. I mean, there are so many things that you must be doing. There's so much that you must be about if you are by faith in Jesus because all that you are about doing is to be pleasing to God. On the other hand, there are others of us who would say, even what actions I take won't be good enough. Some of us are a little too confident in the things that we can do that might be pleasing to God. Others of us are not confident enough. And we say, even if I tried to do these things, it wouldn't be enough. I couldn't do enough. I can't do enough. And you know what? You would be right. And you would be wrong. You would be right and you'd be wrong. Jesus is loved by the Father because he is the perfect image of the Father. He's pleasing to the Father because of his perfect righteousness before the Father. And he is not suggesting just a way for you to do those things. Rather, he is those things for you. He stands in on behalf of you to be those things for you. A friend of mine spoke some years ago at a Sonship Seminar. Sonship is a ministry of a group that is... is is uh, intent on, on helping Christians to grasp and understand their adoption in the gospel, that God the Father has adopted them to be his sons and daughters, and that, that all that comes with that is all the privilege of a son and a daughter to a father. My, son, my, my friend spoke at this seminar, and, and a woman came up afterwards struggling a bit with the concepts of this. This woman came up, and she, and she said, My dad, my own dad, was very harsh with me. And I have a hard time grasping a hold of this, but I remember one time as a little girl, I I tried to help my older sisters with the laundry, and I took my my father's dress shirt because I wanted to serve him and do some good thing for him. I took his dress shirt out of the laundry, and I wasn't tall enough to reach up to the, the clothesline to hang it to dry, so I hung it over the wheelbarrow in the garage. And when my dad came home, he picked up his shirt from the wheelbarrow in the garage and he saw that it had rust stains across the back of it. This now clean dress shirt with rust stains on the back. And she said, my father ridiculed me. He berated me. How could you do this to my shirt? What were you thinking? Why can't you do this right? And the woman, as she related that story, said, I think what I hear you saying about God and the gospel is that if God were my father in that moment, that God would have taken that shirt and said, you ruined my shirt, but I love you anyway. And the speaker at the conference said, not quite. Not quite. You're on the right track, but not quite. He said, if God were your father in that moment, he would have taken the shirt off the, the rusty wheelbarrow and he would have put it on and picked you up and hugged you and thanked you for your love. 
he would have the next day worn that shirt to work and all who asked him about the rust stains across the back shoulders, he would have said to them, yes, my daughter helped me by doing the laundry yesterday. Don't you see how she loves me? And he would delight to wear that mark of her love to work. My daughter did that because she loves me. Your efforts are stained with rust. They are. All of your efforts are stained with rust. Just like all the nobodies in this boring list of names, they also are flawed and stained with rust. And your name is on the list too. You're in the line of the same genealogy here. But by grace, the Son of God also is on that list so that by grace, God himself can say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for your grace to us and we pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to believe your good news and to trust you for it and to live and to walk in the wisdom that you by your Holy Spirit would give to your people, rejoicing that your good news is for your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.